Okay, so grab your Bibles once more, um, or open up your phone to Romans chapter 8 in your Bible app, and we're going to go over three verses today. Romans 8, verse 26 through 28. And let's just read them before we begin. In the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groans that words cannot express. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints in accordance with God's will. And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. I want you to use your imagination just a bit and picture an ancient Greek city. And in that city, there is a, a very large building, marble columns in the front, lots of steps. And on the steps outside that large building is a poor man. You can tell by the way he's dressed and the way he's kept. He's there in front of this large building, which is a courtroom. Inside that building is a courtroom. And inside that building is this poor man's accuser. And that poor man is supposed to appear in court before his accuser very soon. And he's in trouble because the case against him is unjust. He knows he's innocent of whatever it is that the accuser is bringing before him, but the poor man has no resources, no clout, no status in that society, no money for a lawyer, and there is no such thing as a public defender. Even when he goes into that courtroom, he cannot, because he's not a landowner or a rich man or a merchant, he cannot legally speak for himself. He cannot represent himself in court. So he has one of two options. He can either go into that courtroom, be silent, his accuser runs roughshod over him, and he has to accept a guilty plea, or he can stand outside on the steps of this great building and he can shout as loud as he can for all to hear, Parakletos! 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 Verse 26 of our text says, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. I wish there was um, a better visual for this English word help. Most every English translation has the word help there, but it's a big, long, compound word in the Greek that literally means to take hold of at the side. To take hold of at the side is the word for help. In older days, the Holy Spirit was sometimes called the Holy Ghost. And, you know, ghost now, I guess, means something different. So people shy away from some people, some traditions still call him the Holy Ghost. But the word that we don't often hear that the Holy Spirit used to be called quite a bit um, was actually in one of the old hymns that we sang last week that uh, we even talked about it within the worship team. The word is paraclete. And that's not to be confused with parakeet. That's a little cute bird that sits in a cage. And it's not what a track, a track runner would wear, like a paraclete's. But this is a paraclete, which is a compound word in regular Greek language. It means para, which is to come alongside, which, you know, in our school districts, we have paras. What's a para? A para is someone who comes alongside a student and helps them. So para to come alongside, and kaleo, which is to call, to shout. 
So we have parakletos, the one who come along, comes alongside and talks. Randy Garris describes this ancient practice of parakletos as representation in court. If you were poor or not a landowner, you weren't of noble birth, you couldn't represent yourself in a court of law, and neither could you afford a lawyer. So a person out on the street, out in front of the courthouse, could, if, if, if they needed help, they could, they could call out, Parakletas, Parakletas. It was a cry for help. And if you were walking along the street, if you were a rich person, if you were a landowner, a merchant, someone of noble birth, and you heard someone on the steps of the courthouse hollering, Parakletas, you could, if you wanted to, as a person in standing, go up to that person who was asking for help and usher them into the court proceedings. Literally, the person who was the parakletos would stand alongside, take hold of at the side, and during the court proceedings, the poor man couldn't speak for himself, but he could whisper in the parakletos's ear what he needed to say. And the parakletos would then repeat his words to the court. And sometimes the parakletos, being more well-versed in the customs or the traditions or the law, would modify what he heard in order to get a better result from the court, perhaps sway the judge's opinion in favor of the poor man. This was the role of the parakletos. And it is the picture that Paul paints of the Holy Spirit for us. When Paul uses this picture of the Holy Spirit to come alongside of us and helping us to pray, it was not unfamiliar to the people he was talking to. It says here, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for. The New American Standard says, we don't know how to pray as we should. The English Standard Version says, we don't know what to pray for as we ought. The New Living Translation says, we don't know what God wants us to pray for. And I don't know anyone who hasn't felt that way. I don't care how long you've been a Christian. It's just, there's sometimes when, if, if you've never come to prayer and felt weak or wordless or overwhelmed, I wonder if you've ever attempted to pray. Sometimes it's just plain difficult to pray because of outside distractions or it's just a, a, a schedule thing. Perhaps when you do come to pray, you have an attitude problem. You have unconfessed sin that is hindering your prayers. That's also scriptural. But even when we want to pray, even when we really feel like, I gotta pray, sometimes it's like, what do I pray for? How do I pray according to what God wants? Because really, that's our goal, I think. Now, we, we have things we want, and we have things we'd like to see happen, but in, in re reality, we, I guess, would want our prayers to align with the will of God, and sometimes there's a question mark. Well, does God want to heal that person? Or, or not? Does God want that to happen? Or is there another way? And so we falter and I get, I, I can get confused and even discouraged about what to pray for. But the, I don't think this text is saying to just say to God, okay, do whatever you want. Your will be done. See ya. I, I really don't think that's it. I think there's more to it than that. There is this thing about praying without ceasing. Praying 
like breathing. There is this praying as if God were a constant, actively present companion, which he is, whether we know it or not, whether we realize it or not. And this kind of prayer doesn't require words. It doesn't require folded hands or bowed heads. And I mean, in my own limited experience, this kind of prayer is as much being aware of an actively powerful presence under a present authority. It is resting in the knowledge that you walk with your shepherd, that you're talking to a friend, and that you have the full assurance of a father's love and provision for you. Prayer is as much a presence and attitude as it is a presentation of words. And sometimes nonverbal communication between people who know each other well is the norm. I'm always reminded of an interview that um, some of you remember, NBC news anchor Tom Brokaw. And he was interviewing Mother Teresa. And he was asking her about her prayer life. And he asked her, well, what do you say to God when you pray? And Mother Teresa, who had her own struggles with faith and belief in the midst of serving in the in horrific poverty of Calcutta, she answered, well, not much. I mostly listen. Well, this kind of took Tom Brokaw aback a bit. And so he rephrased and said, well, when you listen, what does God say? And she answered, well, not much. He just listens. So you have two people who are actively listening to each other, but not saying a whole lot. She's also quoted as saying, the fruit of silence is prayer. The fruit of prayer is faith. And the fruit of faith is love. And the fruit of love is service. And the fruit of service is peace. Notice the order that she puts this in. It starts with silence. And then prayer, which builds faith, which prompts love, which then expresses itself in service, and then she says, there's peace. We look for peace right away. When in her perspective, peace comes after all of this has taken place. We don't get to step two because we don't do step one. We don't get to eventual peace because we haven't done the hard work of being quiet. I think it could be that we don't know how to pray as we ought because we haven't quieted our minds enough into such silence that we're able to discern the heart of God that allows the Spirit to enter our spirit and agree with each other on what God's will really is. If the fruit of silence is prayer, if the result of silence is prayer, then and if we're not regularly silent, then our prayers will be short, perhaps frustrated, rushed, one-sided, filled with frustration. Maybe it's just a laundry list of things we want God to do. Maybe it's cries for help that genuinely we have and we feel go unanswered. Perhaps they're liturgical prayers, and there's nothing wrong with liturgy, but when prayers are read for the sake of 
rote memory and going through motions, they bring some comfort, but they lack power because they're not birthed from silence or faith. I think one thing that keeps us from spending time in prayer is the notion that we have to get it right, that we have to form complete sentences or coherent thoughts. And almost it's like this pressure of having a beautiful rehearsed poetry recital before God. And while these offerings might be expressed in faith and beauty and, and they're acceptable, I don't think God finds them mandatory. There's an author named Anne Lamott, and she wrote a book called Three Essential Prayers. Help, thanks, and wow. I mean, that pretty much sums it up when you don't know what to say. It's a desperate cry for rescue. It's a happy yelp of gratitude. And it's a heaving sigh of awestruck wonder. The Holy Spirit says, verse 27, He searches our hearts. He knows the mind of the Spirit. The Spirit intercedes for the saints. But before that, in verse 26, the last part of verse 26, the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groans that words cannot express. He comes alongside of us. And we don't know how we ought to pray. And we have this weird dynamic going on that we're trying to talk to God, but God, in the form of the Holy Spirit, who resides within the believer, is also helping us talk to God. And by filling, God is filling in our blanks that we don't know what to say to talk to God. So it's like he's trying to help us talk to him by giving us what we ought to pray. He's praying for us while we pray to him. You see this where this is going. It's, it's, it's a very dense relational exercise. And the only way I know how to explain it or illustrate it, and it comes up short, but it's, I think it's beautiful, is when a mother takes her child whether they're a child or a teenager. And this mom, and I say mom because sometimes dads really aren't that intuitive, you know. Um, sometimes when a teenager or a child gets upset, you know, we might try to make him feel better and we say, you know, suck it up, buttercup, you know, kind of thing. But moms, moms tend to be a little more soft-hearted about stuff like this. And, and when um, the child is, is really just in, in pain inside, um, Emotionally, maybe they're angry about something and they just, they're gritting their teeth or they're just very sad. They're frustrated. And so the mom just sits on the couch with the kid and the kid is trying to talk, but her heart aches with something. She's just having trouble expressing herself. She can't find words, but there's tears coming down her face. And the mother just holds the child because that's what moms do. And she knows what's going on somewhat because, you know, the relationship is close and she has a clue, but she's trying and waiting patiently for the child to, to, to talk to her. And she waits patiently and she waits lovingly for this young girl to speak or this young boy to speak. And sometimes the mother offers her own words to kind of complete the thoughts and the stuttering of the child who's just trying to put 
thoughts together with emotions that are just a train wreck, there's much silence to this conversation. There's much waiting and comfort being given. There's hearts searching for understanding and wisdom. And the mother was there not to give a quick fix, not to just give quick answers and move on. She was there to help the child form their own thoughts and words, and maybe even perhaps a resolve, another step, a plan for what to do next. But this kind of prayer, this kind of conversation, takes time, for one, and it grows from trust. A time-tested relationship that isn't afraid of silence, and it isn't afraid to ugly cry on mama's shoulder, and to groan, and to yearn, and to open up their heart and be vulnerable. How is this possible between us and God? Well, Paul tells us that the Father knows. The Father knows all hearts. He knows what the Spirit is saying. Here's a comforting thought. God knows your heart. He knows all hearts. He sees and he comprehends. And while this might produce a bit of embarrassment, maybe even some shame, a bit of guilt and remorse, because God sees all the junk that's in our heart too, let those feelings turn toward a godly repentance and a submission to his will instead of a worldly sorrow and shame that takes you away from him. The Father knows your heart, and He knows what the Spirit is trying to say as it prays for us and groans in prayer when we don't know what to say. Opening our hearts to the Father, letting the Spirit help us pray, produces a unity that we were created for. And here comes verse 28. And we know... Here's something you can be certain about. We know that God causes everything together to work for the good of those. He causes everything to work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to His purpose for them. This is a fairly well-known verse. It's on a lot of you know coffee mugs and, and cross-stitch and paintings and wall hangings and, and whatever else. And it's also a fairly abused and misquoted, yanked-out-of-context kind of verse. Here, I think, are some common misuses of Romans 8.28. One is, it's all going to be okay. But that's not exactly the point. Another one is, everything happens for a reason. I cringe every time someone tells me that. Everything happens for a reason. Well, no, no, it doesn't. Not everything happens for a reason. And another common misuse of this verse is that God makes everything turn out. At some point, you know, He just makes it all good. I'm not sure that's what it's saying exactly either because it's way too open-ended. Notice there is a conditional statement to this verse. God causes everything to work together for the good of those who love Him and are called according to His purpose. This, this doesn't apply, this it's all going to be good statement doesn't apply for those 
who are outside of Christ. The unpopular truth is that for those who do not love God, who have not answered the call or his purpose in their life, this promise is not for them. It doesn't always work out for the good for those people. It can't. Inevitably, it will turn out very bad in the end because they've rejected him. And it's not because God doesn't love them. He does. But they don't love him. And they haven't responded to his call for their for his purposes for their life. They don't walk in obedience to him. They haven't trusted him for salvation. This promise is beautiful, but it's not universally applied. This promise is for those who have been described in the whole context of this chapter. For those who have been adopted as sons and daughters of God. Those eagerly awaiting the redemption of their bodies. Those who partner with the Spirit in prayer. Who have an eager expectation of future glory because they share in the sufferings of Christ. Everything works out for the good of those who live by the Spirit who walk in the ways of the Spirit, who have set their minds on the things what the Spirit desires. To those people, God works all things together for good. And we, as people adopted into the family, as, as sons and daughters of God, people of faith, we can be the good in the lives of people who don't follow and don't love God. We can be the good, and to bring them in, to disciple them into, to, to communicate and to live out the good news for those outside of Christ is good for them. And God will reach for them, and He does, and He, he prompts people, even outside of, of faith, to come to Him. But let's let Scripture speak where it speaks. So what do we do about this? Part of the burden I have in preaching and in teaching is how to live this out. It's all good theory. It's, it's great truth to be considered, but how do we do something about it? And something I thought of, it could be a good start for anyone learning more of the practice of praying with and praying in the Spirit. Now, it's not as complicated as or strange as some have made it out to be. Two things, I think, can help us here. Silence and praying Scripture. I'll stop short of using the word meditation because in some circles meditation just means, you know, like an Eastern type of meditation where you empty your mind of all things and you're sitting on a mountain with your legs crossed and you go, oh, that's not Christian meditation. Praying Scripture is taking a section of or a phrase out of the Bible and focusing in on that. But before you do that, let me rewind back to the silence part. You know what it's like to have a conversation with someone who does all the talking. I mean, maybe for people who talk a lot, you don't really, you don't really, you're not even aware that you're the one carrying the conversation and the other person really can't get a word in. Be a little self-aware. But if you're the person sitting there going, uh huh, uh, yep, sure, mm, yep, yep, well, I, well, um, yes, 
if you're that person, you understand what it's like to come away from a 20-minute conversation never having spoken more than five words. You come away a little tired. You may be even discouraged because you didn't even get a word in edgewise. But that's exactly what happens when we pray without listening. So begin a prayer. The next time you, you do have a time of prayer, begin with at least a full minute of silence. If you've never done this, 60 seconds of silence will seem like an eternity. I'm talking like no music. Find a place where there's no dogs barking or, or kids running around. And for some of you, that's going to take a little bit of planning but a full 60 seconds just to sit, breathe, and do nothing but listen. To even, in that sense, calm your body, the static of your mind, just to diminish just a tad. And it even helps to lower your blood pressure, and your focus is increased. And 60 seconds will seem like a long time at first, But then as you do it more often, you'll leave the two minutes, or three minutes, or five. And then you begin to just focus and just laser focus down on a single phrase of Scripture. And maybe it's in this, maybe it's a, maybe it's a verse out of the Psalms that you just need to hear, be still and know that I am God. Maybe that's the one you need. But maybe it's, it's a different one, like in this chapter we've been talking about. Maybe it's chapter, uh, verse 13 out of chapter 8, where it says, But if th- by the power of the Spirit you put to death the deeds of your sinful nature, you will live. This is both a comfort and a provision and a time of confession. Narrow it down to one phrase, and you just say it over and over and over. You emphasize different words each time. Through the power of the Spirit, put to death the deeds of the sinful nature. Put it in your own words. By the power of the Spirit, kill the deeds of the flesh. Put it in a prayer. Dear God, may your Spirit put to death anything in me that keeps me from you. And just keep saying it and keep praying it and let it enter your mind, let it permeate your heart, let it soak in and let God speak because He will. And He'll begin to expose different areas of your life that He knows your heart and He will help you learn to pray about those things. And that takes time and that takes some patience. Prayer is not a one-way conversation. It's a two-way relationship that's ongoing and consistent and ever-present. The school of prayer never quits. You never get a diploma because you're done. It goes on and on your whole life. And that's why we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love Him. Because you've been listening to the Spirit, because you've been suffering 
in your life with Christ, you've been enduring painful opposition or circumstances beyond your control. The, the question that I've asked myself, and I'm not sure I've answered very well yet, is what kind of old man do I want to be? And, and maybe more succinctly and more short term, is what kind of person do you want to be once COVID-19 becomes more managed or more of the norm or more in the past? Let's just say it that way. What kind of person do you want to be once all of this is largely past us and we have and we come to a new normal? When you answer that question, you begin to say, well, then I need to do this now or I'll never get there. We let the Spirit help us in our weakness. We don't be anxious about what to pray for because we allow the Spirit to come alongside of us and be our parakletos. We allow the Father full access into our heart. We allow silence and time to let Scripture take root in our heart. And for those of you who love God and have answered the call, trust that He is working all things together for your good and for His glory. Let's pray together. Father, it's a difficult world. It always has been. There have, there have been times of trial before. But this is different. For, for some reason and a lot of reasons, this is different. And it's not over. And there's a lot of anxiety. There's a lot of fear of the future. And not about just the illness. And not about just communicating or spreading the virus. But how, how our world will change what will happen to our school systems? What will happen to our colleges and universities? How will our economy be impacted? What of, what of politics and national security? And, and what about all these other countries that deal differently with it? And how will our world look? These are all questions that, frankly, we wring our hands about a lot. And we listen to way too much news on the radio or the TV based on our political bent, but Father, may we spend more time talking to you about what's in our heart and trusting you with who we are and our influence on people as a kingdom citizen than we do worrying about what the fall semester will look like or if we'll get sick. We consider these present sufferings not to compare with the glory that's to be revealed in us. Help us to live like we believe that. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.